brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older. Or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. As you know, the job pays reasonably well, and if you work hard, who knows, you may uh, end up behind this desk one day. There's a storeroom there where you can leave bits and pieces, cashier's desk, down this corridor's the main bar. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Back with me is Mr. Jonathan Owen. Hello. Thank you for having me back. Also with us this week is Ms. Alicia Malone. Hello, I'm so excited to be part of this show. This week we're discussing the 1970 film from Jersey Skolomowski, Deep End. The film stars John Mulder Brown as Mike, a 15-year-old dropout who finds work at a public bath where he takes care of the male patrons while Jane Asher plays Susan, the female attendant. Mike becomes obsessed with Susan while she juggles her fiancé and side piece. It's a rather unsettling coming-of-age story in the twilight days of the swinging London scene. Now, we're going to be getting into spoiler territory big time on this episode and serving up the ending on the silver platter, so be warned. So, Jonathan, when was the first time you saw Deep End, and what did you think? I first saw it um, in 1999, so nearly 20 years ago. It made a big impression on me. Um, I saw it at the Leeds Film Festival um, as part of a season of Scully Mosky's films. Um, I didn't really know anything about Scully Mosky prior to this. Um, and uh, this was the film, really, that made the biggest impact. Um, and as one little proof of that impact, I remember after I'd seen it, I was talking to the festival ticket seller, 
and she had missed uh, the end of the film. And I remember her asking me uh, what, what happened at the end. And I went into this very long, very enthusiastic description of basically all the sort of final scenes of the movie. It was so vivid in my head that I went overboard in describing it. And probably I will do that today. And I think really what impacted on me the most at the time, I think the sense of humor and I think the sort of unexpectedness of the ending, that incredible uh, dark ending. And I think there's also a sort of a spontaneity to the film, too. It really just takes you along with it. There is this sort of thrilling quality that it has, and it feels quite offhand. It feels like the episodes are just being conjured out of nowhere. But I think the more I've seen the film since then, I think I've come to appreciate it also for the sense of control that it has. I think there is a sense of structure and Scully Mosky, I think, very cleverly weaves these little premonitions and little motifs through the film. So that ending is actually not as surprising as it might first seem. I think he's weaving little clues really earlier on. So I, I think really the more I saw it, the more impressed I was by that uh, sort of visual language that it has and by the sense of, uh, yes, of structure and control as well as the, the spontaneity. How about you, Alicia? Well, I had actually never seen it until just this week. It was a movie that I'd heard a lot about, particularly any time I read about Skolomovsky's work because it was his most famous film, but one that's actually quite hard to find. So to watch this movie, I actually had to buy the DVD from Amazon and get it shipped over to me. And I'm so glad that I got to see it, it's a movie that feels both dreamlike and steeped in dark reality. It's very unsettling. I feel like I need to watch it again, having seen it just once through, to go back and notice all the little motifs that lead up to that big ending. When I first saw it, I wasn't sure if I liked that ending or not, but it really sits with you and it makes you think about it a lot and um, it doesn't go away very easily. It's a very unique coming-of-age story, one that you don't often see. And um, overall, I think was really impressed by it. It's also interesting to have it set in the world of the public baths because that's something that I think is particularly English, but we also had in Australia, particularly around the beaches. And I just love how it was this little microcosm, this world where so much was going on inside. Yeah, there aren't too many bathhouse movies that I can think of. Like, there's only maybe two that come to mind when I think about it. And it is a world unto itself. And just to have that bath as being the center piece the pool being the center piece and then all of those corridors going around it it reminds me there's almost like a maze-like quality to it sometimes i'm glad that that is something that we've mentioned really the bathhouse and uh um i actually wanted to um, explore that a little bit more as to how um common a phenomenon this was i mean uh, i guess being british myself i'm quite familiar with this uh institution of the fact that you had these public bathhouses that were not only swimming baths swimming pools but also that would uh, have these cubicles where people could take a bath and i think certainly at the time that that film that the film was made this was a phenomenon in britain where i guess maybe if people didn't have their own bathtubs they might come to the uh, public bath for their weekly bath. And um, I think that's quite a revealing um, thing about Britain at the time. I think it suggests, you know, to what extent people's uh, hygiene standards maybe are not quite uh, what they are now. And 
I think that idea that Alicia mentioned of the film being a microcosm or of the setting being a microcosm, I think, relates to that. I think this setting is quite a telling one. So, uh, yes, I was interested, yes, in how far this is a, a broader phenomenon or whether this is something that is specifically British. Yeah, I think in, in Australia, the bathhouses we had were uh, a holdover from more of the English roots. It does feel like something that it was particularly British. And in Australia, I think it was more, you know, you go to the beach and then you go and have a shower, uh, similar to what you do at, at the gym, say. But it's really interesting to think about that as an idea of going to a place to have your bath, which is something that is quite private. Uh, but as we see here sometimes, you know, is not as private. So Mike gets invited into this little world and the idea of the cubicles and the segregation of the sexes, I think is, is very interesting. Yeah. Being a child of the seventies, when I hear the term bathhouse, the thing that immediately goes through my mind is I append the word gay to the front of it. And I think gay bathhouse, because I think of bathhouses in New York City and how they were kind of the place for gay men to meet up. And then I think about, you know, Turkish baths, those kind of things. And I know that they're not limited to New York City, that there are bathhouses and it's not limited to gay people either. And that we have like a Turkish bath where you can get a schwitz over into the east side of Detroit. So they are around, but they're not nearly as prevalent to me anyway, growing up here in the Midwest, as it sounds like they are to you guys, as far as like them being a cultural phenomenon. That's interesting, I think, to compare it with the, uh, the, the sexual associations of the bathhouse, because I guess in this case, um, on the surface, I mean, this is uh, an image of propriety. I guess it's an image of cleanliness. And uh, of course, the, uh, we see the manager of the bathhouse who's very formal, he insists on being called sir. And, and yet there is this undercurrent of sexuality unofficially that's going on, isn't there, where Susan is... Uh, basically taking the, uh, the the male patrons and then having Mike take the female patrons and uh, using sexuality to get the tips and so on. So there is this sort of undercurrent of sexual goings on, but it's, I guess, not explicit. It's beneath the surface of this apparent propriety of, of the British public bath. I think we even get that right from the beginning when we have his job interview. And yes, the manager is very formal and everything, but he has this weird light fixture in his office and a cord that looks like it's got electrical tape around it right there in the foreground of the shot, almost breaking the manager's face in two. So it's like, yes, we have this very, you know, call, don't call me governor, call me sir. But yet the bathhouse is as run down as it possibly could be. The paint peeling off the walls, it just looks like it's been around for a long time and really needs a fresh coat of paint, which it eventually gets. It definitely does. And it's it's interesting, the very beginning scene where Susan is showing Mike around. I love the line that she says when she's cleaning off the graffiti off the walls that when they're they're all supermen. And I think that says a lot as well about the film and how when people go into the cubicles, they can become someone else. They can explore different fantasies that they have. Um, they can get themselves clean or maybe dirty. Um, and I think it's, it's very interesting as she's showing Mike around and you get the sense that Mike is very innocent and, and is being taken into this world that he's not quite prepared for. Yes, I think that's uh, a really interesting connection, isn't it? I think the connection with fantasy. And I think that uh, 
Uh, I guess we'll talk more about symbolism in the movie, but I think there is this constant connection between water or being underwater and fantasy. And fantasy, I think, seems to play a big part in a lot of the relationships, doesn't it, I think, in the movie. I think that uh, uh, we could say that there's perhaps not many really uh, fulfilled or properly kind of human relationships between the characters. I think a lot of the relationships are taking place at the level of fantasy. And I think that's most explicit, isn't it, with the uh, the patrons, the bath patrons who are using, say, Mike or Susan as a vehicle for their own imaginings. And uh, going back to the point about the manager's office, I think that's true about the, the setting, that there is this kind of broken down seediness isn't there about a lot of the settings and environments in the film that was one of the things that I think most impressed me when I first saw it that I think the film I guess coming as it does from a non-British director coming from a Polish director as an outsider he's able to capture I think what is the kind of grottiness or this sort of seediness of British life at the time and I think that we we hear a lot about the glamour of swinging London and the swinging 60s in England. But to me, I think the film captures a certain sort of uh, seediness and, and, uh, as I say, a sort of grottiness, which I think to me is... Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older. Or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. MIDI specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Probably more authentic, I think, uh, in terms of most people's experience at that time. And you're right as far as the symbolism goes. I mean, there's so much of it throughout here, even at the very beginning, seeing that drop of red paint and that's associated with the red of Mike's bicycle because we start on the outside. This whole movie really breaks itself into pieces between outside and inside. And we begin on the outside and we have all of these shots of Mike's bike. And then the way that the screen will turn red and continue going down his bicycle and then we'll go back to its normal color scheme. I mean, it really is telegraphing to us right from the beginning that there is more to this movie than necessarily meets the eye. Yes, I think that that uh, that drop of blood in that uh, opening sequence is very, uh, uh, it's a great way to begin, isn't it? Because I think it does announce that uh, idea of danger and I guess also the the presence of colour in general throughout the movie. I think it's a way of saying that colour will be used in this significant way throughout the movie. And uh, I think in that first image, I mean, we're not sure, are we, whether it's blood or whether it's paint. I mean, it's a very bright red mm-hmm. kind of blood. It's not really a realistic colour. Um, and I guess there are all kinds of associations that red will have, aren't there? I mean, I guess it's the red of Susan's hair. It's the... Uh, the red of the paint, the red of the blood, um, the fire alarm. It's sort of a constant presence, isn't it, throughout the movie? Yeah, the, the colour is what 
really struck me when I saw it and how it begins and ends with the red. And like you said, whether it's the red paint or the red blood, red is a very powerful motif throughout the whole film. And I feel like it is often associated with Susan. You know, it often shows up in scenes where she is present, particularly the scene we'll talk about later on with the red paint of the corridor. I totally didn't even realize, Alicia, when I asked you to be on this one about our main female character being a redhead like yourself and just how much that plays into the film. Yeah, it does. And and I thought that was really interesting. I mean, uh, the red of Jack's hair is, is not a particularly vibrant red. It's kind of a really interesting sherbet, orangey type red, but it does make her stand out from all the other women who are in the film. And, you know, the the idea of the redhead being a, a dangerous woman, um, often someone you, that can't be trusted. I mean, I'm a fake redhead, so I don't take offense to any of that stuff. But I thought that it was, it, it, it spoke a lot about, um, you know, her casting. I know that was her hair, I think think in, in real life as well, but I think it was used in a great way with her character who um, is very dangerous and she she plays with, with the men, trust anything that she does. I think it was the American poster for the film that made those connections very direct because, uh, as I recall, the, the poster shows um, Susan's head and with the hair coming down in strands and then the strands turn into drops of blood. So I think that that uh, clearly was something that was part of the promotion of the film as well. It was actions as well. Yeah, and her hair, obviously, when you see underwater, her hair almost looks like tentacles or something coming out of her head. It's quite vivid against the, the blue of the water. And we kind of rob Mike of his color right off the bat because he falls into the water. I mean, here it is his first day at the job and he falls into the water and he gets put into a white bathrobe. And that's kind of the, the symbol of the, the, the bathhouse is this white bathrobe. And he travels around in that white bathrobe for what I would think would be a lot longer than he should. And it took me a while to actually realize that this movie takes place over a week. Like I thought this was an entire summer. And then it kind of dawned on me later on, and when I was watching the um, the extras that were on the DVD, great extras, by the way, um, they say, oh, yeah, this takes place over a week. And I was like, yeah, I guess that makes sense because we get to see his first payday during this, which I didn't really even realize that he would get paid during his first week. I'm used to – I don't know how it is with you guys, but I'm used to jobs where – they hold that first pay period, and then you get it like two weeks after that. So I'm getting my first paycheck literally a month after I start a job sometimes. And it's a real pain in the ass. But luckily, he gets paid that same week. Yes, I'm not sure how realistic that was. I mean, I think perhaps probably could have been the case at that time, yes. Uh, and uh, as you say, I think the structure of the, uh, the week um, is, uh, again, something that I had not known. I think until I, I saw the, the extras. And I think it's one of those brilliant things about Skolimowski's work where you do have this formal structure sort of in a way lying underneath the explicit content. So, I mean, it does seem very free form. And it's interesting to know how carefully he had structured it like that. So you get this uh, focus basically on the interior scenes right up until you get to the Saturday where you get the sort of the long Soho sequence, which I guess is the longest time that we spend outside the baths. So yes, I think it, it is a kind of natural structure, isn't it? Because the all the sort of the, the the more dramatic things start to happen at the weekend. So I guess 
there is a sort of a logic, there's a dramatic logic to it as well, isn't there, as well as it being a kind of a nice structuring principle. And such a busy week. <laughs> I mean, what a journey Mike goes on within the one week and he falls into the deep end beginning and, and then is in the deep end right at the end. Um, and he goes from being a, a sort of innocent victim to being this um, almost sexually aggressive pursuer. I mean, so much happens within that one week. And it's something that you don't notice at first. I didn't realize it was a week. I, I assumed it was going to be over a summer. It was like a, a period of, of a longer time. But when you look at it in that way, it's it's really interesting to know, as you say, Jonathan, the structure that was underneath of what feels at times often very dreamlike and hazy. I suppose he could have done like a, a Kubrick thing from The Shining and just been like Tuesday, the most ominous days of the week you could possibly do. And picking up on the uh, the point that you made about the, the bathrobe that he's in right from the beginning, I mean, I watching it again, I don't know if I'm maybe over-reading it, but it's almost like he's a, like a baby in swaddling clothes almost, isn't it? I think that uh, the fact that he's in this bathrobe um, right from the beginning underlines that sort of virginal innocence that he has at the beginning. Um, he's, he's kind of clearly a vulnerable character, isn't he, at that point? Yeah, and they, and he looks like a customer as well. I mean, even when he begins work and he, he serves his first customer, takes him to the cubicle, um, him to the cubicle. It's still he's still in the bathrobe, so he still looks like he is one of the customers, even though he is officially working there. John Mulder Brown, at this point in his career, he had this real floppy hairdo, and he's so reminded me of like a young Jeff or Bo Bridges. As I was watching this, I was just like, wow, he looks like Bo Bridges from The Landlord or something. And it was just, and he's he's a gorgeous young man, uh, but it was just a little disconcerting at times because I was just like, my gosh, he looks like Jeff Bridges. He reminded me a lot of um, Max Caulfield, you know, from um, Grease 2. <laughs> That kind of that kind of very pretty face, um, and he has a really striking face. I think he's cast perfectly because he does look so innocent and he and young, and and he's the type of person that you can imagine somebody projecting their fantasies onto because he is just very good looking and sweet, um, and the way he speaks as well, you, you kind of want to give him a big hug. Yes, I think it's really brilliant casting. Um, I mean, I think Scully Mosky could have gone down an alternative route and he could have got an actor who was maybe more of a cheeky chappy type actor in that role. I mean, I guess Mike is meant to be, I mean, I guess he's meant to be a working class character really because he's uh, left school, he's doing this this job and um I mean, in one sense, I guess John Mulder Brown's accent is maybe a little bit plummy for the role. I mean, in, in a kind of a, a literal sense. But I think that voice, I think, is wonderful. And I think it really does lend and emphasizes that innocence somehow and the sense that he's almost a little bit at odds with his environment somehow. He slightly doesn't quite fit into it. So I think that accent that he brings and that sort of floppy head, um, in a way, virginal quality, I think, really adds to that sense of being a little bit removed from the from the environment. We really have to talk about that scene with Diana Doors, who was oh uh, she was amazing. Uh, go back and watch her films in the fifties and sixties, and she is amazing in this as well. And just that her whole come on to him, and I mean, 
I will say it. I mean, it's basically it's a rape. You know, she basically rapes him in the bathhouse, but she does it in this bizarre way of talking about football. And it really is a striking scene. Yeah, this is a scene that is is very unsettling and also feels like it is a fantasy or, or a dream, something not steeped in reality. And here, you know, Diana Dawes, she was such a bombshell uh, actress and and known for her voluptuous looks. And he, she's almost playing a caricature of herself. And um, she's quite menacing as well, the way that she keeps him coming back in and, and almost questions makes him question himself that he's feeling uneasy, feeling like he's not supposed to be there. And she's like, don't be silly. And then to go on this bizarre fantasy, this George Best (laughs) fantasy with like talking about tackling and dribbling and scoring and holding his head. And it's like an orgasm scene. But, and then as soon as she's done, she pushes Mike away. She's done with him. She wants to discard him, get, get him out of there. Um, And I feel so sorry for him in that moment because he's just being smothered by her. There's an incredible balance between humour and I guess a kind of nightmarish quality, isn't there, in that scene? And I think to me, it's part of the the brilliance, I think, of the film, both of Skolimowski and of Diana Dawes, that they're able to tap into what I would say in some ways is quite a British tradition of double entendre and of this kind of physical comedy or this comedy of, I guess, of sexual anxiety, but to push it into dark territory than I guess we're used to. I mean, I guess Diana Dawes was at the point where she was, I guess she'd moved away from the bombshell type roles and was doing more character parts. And I guess she was making this um, territory her own, really, this this sort of slightly knowingly grotesque um, figure that she was playing. And uh, I think she does it incredibly well. And I mean, the I think from what I can remember, I mean, there's only like a couple of shots. There's maybe two or three shots in that scene where she's talking about football. And um, it's very well acted and uh, very convincing as well, isn't it? The way she sort of pulls him around. It, it does look. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Painful. That they use a handheld camera to shoot. The majority of this film, I think there were only a few points where they didn't use a handheld camera, was really a smart idea because it lent to how quickly they shot this movie, even though they shot it in two major locations, shot the majority of it in Munich and then shot the exteriors in London. Um, But the idea of doing this quickly and catching these performances, and you talked about at the very beginning, you talked about how they're feels to be almost a like a free formness to this almost like these things are being acted out as they're 
coming to it rather than uh, being scripted necessarily, even though this, there was a script to it, but there's a lot of improvisation. That's the word I was looking for. A lot of improvisation to this film. Yeah, and I think the hassling of like emotional instability throughout the film, uh, it gets particularly chaotic. It also feels a lot like it's coming from his perspective at times. Like the camera's almost voyeuristic. It's peering around the corner. It's peering through keyholes. It feels like it's mirroring what Mike is going through and um and some of the the camera movements when they get quite erratic it really does put you in the moment of the film and increase tension as well it feels like you are right there or you're watching something that's real or something that you're not supposed to watch yes i i was really impressed by the camera work when i first saw it and i mean i think especially when you think that this is pre-steadicam cam and i think they had quite a heavy handheld camera and some of the the, the movements are very uh, sophisticated and there is this very frenetic quality, isn't there, at times, like in the Soho sequence where the camera is circling round in the uh, reception of the club. And uh, yes, I, I agree that I think it does capture something of Mike's character. You feel that you're with him in his chaos, don't you, in his emotional chaos. And uh, I think it captures that sense of energy, which I think to me is very much a characteristic of Skolimowski's heroes. I think all the way through there is this energy often misdirected or not quite knowing where it's going. And I think the camera work is very uh, effective in capturing that. I want to talk a little bit about the cashier at the Bass. Erica Beer plays this character, and she is a very, very striking blonde. And a lot of times I think she's almost supposed to be a mirror of the Deanna Doors character just because she's this older blonde and she seems to want more than she's letting on. Like, I think she would devour Mike if she had the chance, but that's not really she's never really given the chance she never really steps on it and she always is wearing these cat's eye glasses you know hiding her intentions and when she takes off the glasses it becomes this transformation towards the end of the film but she is a very interesting character and i was very uh struck by her and i didn't realize when i was first watching this film when i looked her up to see all of these german films that she was in i didn't realize that she was one of many german actors and actresses that they used in this movie because of where they were shooting so that she wasn't british i i mean for me it might have been very disconcerting for you guys to watch this and see that these people were speaking with maybe accents that they shouldn't have maybe their lips didn't match up entirely but for me i thought it looked very good as far as the looping and it didn't seem like there was any uh, malfeasance with the accents that was something that I didn't know when I first saw the film. I think it was only when I went back and read about the fact that a lot of it had been shot in Munich and, and then about the looking at, uh, when I looked up the names of the actors, I, I put two and two together and realized, yes, that a lot of them are German actors. And I assume in many cases are dubbed by different actors. Certainly, I think Carl Michael Vogler, who plays the gym teacher, I think is dubbed by an English. It it sounds convincingly British to me anyway, his accent. Some of the other accents sound a little bit German, so I'm not sure whether some actors actually loop themselves. But uh, yes, that's something that I was not aware of. I think, as you say, I think the dubbing is pretty good. I mean, I think at certain points I noticed that Skolimowski seems to be trying to hide the mouths of the actors. So occasionally you have like a chord or you have like a, a picture or something in front of the mouth of the actor as though he's trying to hide the uh, the dubbing effect. But yes, I think in general it's pretty well done. I think it gives us maybe 
at certain points, it gives us just enough of a slightly odd feeling. There's a slight sense of things being a little bit out of sync. But I think that adds to the uh, surreal quality of the film as well somehow. Yeah, that's exactly how I feel. When I saw it, I could tell that it was dubbed at points, but it just added to that feeling of it just being slightly off kilter, that's not quite reality. It is, but it isn't. And even the times when you could catch the lips not syncing with the sound even slightly, it just added to that feeling of, okay, this is a step away from reality, but at the same time it does feel very real. So I actually liked that. I thought that it added to the film. Um, and I love the cashier. I especially enjoyed the scenes with her and Susan and this competitive thing that they have going on uh, being two very different women and the cashier disapproving of Susan and the way she is much more free sexually. But then later on we see the the cashier take off her glasses in a very suggestive manner towards Mike. So, um, yeah, I agree that it seems like she could devour Mike at any moment as well. And But you have these two very different women, the 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 blonde and the redhead and the scene where Susan is is having her like chocolatey drink with the whipped cream on top of that the cashier ends up ruining. I thought that was a really brilliant scene and, and very telling of these two very different women. Yes, I think there is that predatory quality, isn't there, in that scene where she gives him the, the wage packet. And yes, I think it's another echo of this theme of, uh, of Mike being at risk all the time from uh, I guess, predatory older women. And I guess that's, again, one of the themes that you often find, like in British sex comedies. And again, it's taken to this sort of into rather nightmarish territory. And uh, I also think she's a wonderful character. And uh, I love the scene where um, she's leaving work with Mike and she she says, uh, nice weather for ducks, isn't it? And uh, I love the way that she says it, because, I mean, to me, that's a phrase that I used to hear a lot. It's one of those kind of cliches about sort of English conversation about weather. And uh, But she gives it a kind of an odd emphasis. It's not quite clear if there's a sort of a double entendre implied somehow. But it's uh, and I think a lot of the dialogue in the movie is like that, where you get these quite banal phrases. But uh, there's somehow this defamiliarization going on where it sounds as though it's being used for the first time somehow. And maybe this is because Skolimowski was discovering these odd phrases and these odd little cliches of English conversation. We are learning things as Mike is learning things. As he learns about the gym teacher and him having an affair with Susan, we're learning about it. As we're hearing that Susan has a fiancé, as Mike's hearing that, we're hearing it. So we are very much along with the ride for Mike. And I was actually surprised to know that she was having this affair with the gym teacher. Then I was surprised that she has this fiance. And both of these guys are probably the most, and again, this could be because we're seeing it through Mike's eyes, not literally, but we're uh, uh, along for the ride. These are two of the most abhorrent characters that I've seen in movies in a long time. I mean, the swimming instructor slash gym teacher, him slapping the girls on the bums. I, I was just livid seeing that. Yes, I think that's um, one of the aspects of the film that I think perhaps seems even more disturbing now than maybe it was at the time. It's a little bit like um, Uncle Ernie, isn't it, in Tommy, where I think uh, what was maybe twisted and disturbing, but also sort of slightly um, 
taken in a light-hearted way at the time. I mean, now looks really unpleasant. And I mean, really, the, the gym teacher is, a, if not a rapist, then certainly, I mean, a, 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 an abuser, isn't he, of young girls. And uh, as you say, I mean, a, a really creepy and ultimately rather pathetic figure as well, I think. Yeah, Ria's comeuppance right at the end uh, where Susan berates him and he kind of backs out slowly from to out the window. He really is taken down a peg or two because what she's saying is very true. And when you see him, the gym teacher, with Mike the first time, you think he seems like a really nice guy. He's pretending to play football with him. Uh, seems like he could be a great male father figure almost for for Mike and then once you see him with the young girls and then later on with with Susan as well he just has this undercurrent of uh yeah this predatory behavior again he's someone that can't be trusted someone who has um, a whole other side to them that you don't realize at first and then also the fiance is pretty mm-hmm. horrible I love that Mike uh, describes him as like, like horse horse looking <laughs> he does have kind of a, a horse looking face and and um, the scene in the adult theater I thought that was a very interesting one and you just see how Susan she knows that she has this power over men that she is beautiful and she's very sexy and she is really fit feeling the heights of her power and she's quite ruthless in the way that she plays with all these guys, including Mike, who she gives just enough encouragement to that he is willing to keep going back and, and becomes obsessed with her. She definitely doesn't put a stop to any of his behaviour, but she also makes his life hell. The fiancé, uh, to me, is one of those aspects of the film that I think really roots it in that time and place. Because, I mean, to me, he's very much the kind of typical Soho gent, isn't he? Slightly Mm -hmm. dandyish looking. And he's really like a kind of a poor man's rolling stone in a way, isn't he? With this hair and this horse face. And a terrible thing to say because Christopher Sanford seems like a lovely guy from the... uh, (laughs) The DVD extras, but I think he does very, he's very game, I think, in playing this quite unpleasant uh, character. And you assume that, I mean, he's fairly well off, I think, relatively speaking. And so I guess um, that is the appeal that he has. But certainly as a character, he, he, he is quite an unpleasant and quite selfish figure, isn't he, really? Taking uh, Susan to the adult theatre is part of that, isn't he? That he's really just concerned with his own pleasure. And probably it's the typical scenario of thinking, well, this will be the thing that will loosen her up by taking her to this dirty movie. But of course, the movie just looks terrible. And uh, yeah. I don't know. I wanted to see that movie personally. <laughs> it looks like another movie where. Again, it's like that these women being quite um, strong sexually and, you know, you've got the the female professor type figure explaining sex. And at one point in the screen, in the screen, you see this naked man, you know, looking very sheepish and, and uh, as the, the woman, it's very much in control. And I think that's what's interesting also about this film is the fact that you have these women who are very powerful in their like in the fact that they are sexual they're sometimes older sometimes younger but it's the women that are mostly the aggressors in the film apart from the the gym teacher well these women are so powerful that they could actually get a man pregnant i mean that's quite um emasculating for a guy to imagine and and it's such a weird image again it's it's another one of those things that's like reality but slightly off kilter and and odd and and you can tell susan's really enjoying it and enjoying how uncomfortable mike is feeling about that poster (laughs) yes it's another of those great time capsule 
historical moment as well, isn't it? Because I, I believe that poster did come out in 1970, and I think uh, it was basically a, um, a promotional poster for the Family Planning Association. So I think it says a little bit about the social political context at that time, I guess, of the permissive society, I guess, of these social changes towards recognition of the need for birth control and so on. And um, so I think it has that kind of contextual significance. I mean, certainly it's a poster, it's an image that I remember seeing a lot as a child. I think even in into the 80s, that image was still quite current. Um, but I think the brilliance of the film is that it gives it this psychological dimension too. So as you say, I think it is an emasculating presence. I mean, it's interesting that Mike, from the moment he sees it, reacts to it with hostility, doesn't he? He really doesn't like it. And uh, and then, of course, Susan makes it worse by sort of making it into a little costume for him. And uh, <laughs> I think if there's a sort of a counterpart to that image, to me, it's the image of the cashier with the fire extinguisher. So I think if you have a kind of a pregnant man we also have this kind of phallic woman, really, because she's got this fire extinguisher that, uh, if you remember, really starts to kind of go crazy. And uh, to me, that's a nice little answer to that image. I'm glad I wasn't the only one who was thinking of ejaculation with that yeah. fire extinguisher. <laughs> no, I was as well. And, and the way that she is trying to handle it and she can't quite handle it. And before it starts going off, when she's trying to drag it out and she's got it upside down and she doesn't know what she's doing, and it's very heavy. And then also the idea that she's the one that has gone to get the fire extinguisher and not, you know, the boss who obviously realizes that it's a false alarm. But still, I, I like the fact that she's the one that's just trying to take action and then it goes out of control and it is, as you say, very phallic. <laughs> And then I think she even goes into the men's section, doesn't she, by mistake? Yeah. Yeah. And I think the fact that you have this men's section and women's section, and yet there is this constant sort of interchange between them, isn't there, of this swapping of roles, I think that adds to that commentary, doesn't it, on on changes in gender roles, sort of switching around the stereotypes of male and female behaviour. Yeah, and the idea of um, it, the, the bathhouse trying to be on the surface very pure and segregated with the sexes and but then how underneath there's so much going on that mixes it and makes it a lot more grottier than what it is trying to appear as. Yes, it's interesting that line early on, isn't it, when Mike says when he first sees the the bathhouse and he says, like, I, I thought it would all be white. And that's an interesting commentary on the fact that, I mean, maybe the image, the ideal is that it's this pure white space, but actually it's kind of grotty and dirty, isn't it? And the, that kind of green colour, I think, lends it that sort of seediness somehow. It's kind of like a, not a nice shade. It's, it's this sort of bottle green, isn't it? It uh, gives it this slightly kind of used look. Yeah, mouldy, mouldy look. Though I think it would have been very nightmarish to walk in there and have all the walls painted red like they're doing. <laughs> yeah, I know. That doesn't seem to engender a sort of relaxing environment. And at the end, when you see the pool and you see that they've almost tried a different couple of different colors to see what would work, and they're all uh, shades of, of red and orange and yellow and and definitely taking it in a whole other direction, going from yeah the appearance of could could have been white, and then it goes straight to red, and again it's kind of an, a nod to Susan too. 
Yeah, you mentioned that scene of her eating her sweet. You know, she basically takes a tip that was meant for Mike, goes out and buys this sweet with it, and comes in and is pretty much throwing it in the cashier's face. And while she's doing that, she's on the left side of the screen, the cashier's on the right-hand side of the screen, all dressed in green, as we've got the green wall in the back, and then we've got the guy coming in and painting the walls red throughout the scene. It's a really nice uh, visual metaphor of what's going on with the power play in that scene, until the cashier then, what is it, she's spraying perfume? Is that how she ruins the, the treat? I think so. Yeah, I yeah, I couldn't tell exactly what she was doing, but I like the fact that she, you know, did it a few times, like just to <laughs> look at her in the face and like, there you go, I've ruined your treat. And it is also interesting in that scene when you, with the, the red painting, because you can't quite see the man, you can mainly just see his hand moving and, and you see the back of him, but uh, you can't see his face or anything and I found myself watching the way he was painting it's it's quite uh you know meditative almost because it's just going up and down up and down looks very smooth um but often you don't see him and he's just in the background while these two ladies are having this whole power play going back to the adult theater talking about power plays as well I mean it's such a power play for the fiance to take Susan there and he's pretty much putting her on display and it's just like look what I have and bringing this woman in there it reminds me a lot of of course Travis Bickle bringing Betsy to the theater and be like no 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 all the all couples do this it's a couple's kind of thing so he might be colored in my opinion having seen Taxi Driver a few hundred times and just be like wow anybody who takes his girl to an adult theater in the the 70s like this is kind of a creep though I'm sure it was not as creepy as I make it out to be now. Taxi Driver, I think, was was something that that was on my mind too, and also, um, uh, uh, I guess, a much sort of a more lowbrow cultural reference point was Carry On at Your Convenience, where I think a similar pushy fiance who takes uh, his date to, uh, I guess, more of this kind of movie, this kind of soft porn kind of quasi-educational, pseudo-educational film. And uh, he's being watched by the uh, the guy who is really in love with the, the girl. So there's a sort of a similar, uh, I think that was the same year as well, or maybe a little bit later than this. And I think it's one of those tropes that we see, isn't it, at that time of, uh, I guess, of the man wanting to see the movie and then also thinking that this will be the thing to, you know, to liberate the the date and uh, warm her up a bit and uh, yes there is that I think misogynistic undercurrent through that whole sequence isn't there really and uh, of course there's also that bit outside the cinema where you get the other male patron and he's just kind of ogling Susan isn't he quite openly yeah she does that brilliant thing of like confronting him she just like opens her coat up and it's like well you know just have a look you know and uh, and then he kind of backs off a bit and it's almost like in, in his mind, she's become part of the uh, entertainment. And I, I think there's a sort of a comment on there on the, I think the way this, you know, the so-called permissive culture of the late 60s, I mean, in many ways, it was just about serving sort of male um, voyeurism and male male desire, really. It wasn't really doing much for women. It was very much this culture of uh, looking at images of women. And, uh, you know, I think that it, to me, is part of that rather kind of withering, rather kind of critical vision of the so-called swinging London. Yeah. And I like the way that Susan manages to get her power back because she doesn't want to go into the film. She ends up relenting. She goes in there. She's being ogled by that guy. And 
And uh, you're right that, you know, women in that context, uh, men tend to treat them just as objects, much like the, the women that they hope to see on the screen and feel like they can treat women as they would, you know, in that context. And then you have uh, the fiancé who seems really into the film. I mean, he's <laughs> sitting there, he's like watching, eating his snacks or whatever. He's like leaning forward in his seat and Susan's behind him. And then the way that she uses Mike to then get her power back with her fiancé and when he goes off to get the manager and then comes back, she refuses to move a seat down for him to sit there. And so she really becomes the the one that's in control of that scene. And, and I like the, that fact. Yeah, Jonathan, you talked about warming Susan up possibly by having her see this movie. And I don't think it's any coincidence that we have that woman in the refrigerator on screen and this whole discussion of frigidity. And it's just like, what can I do? How can I make this woman you know, warm up to me kind of thing? And you guys are right as far as he is a very posh guy. I mean, he must have a good deal of money because the next night when they go out and to go to that club and we hear how expensive it is to have a club membership and then also the minimum drink requirement i mean that's going to eat up all of his paycheck his first paycheck so he wisely and i'm glad that he well i don't think he had any choice in the matter because i don't think he could afford it but he wisely turns tail and leaves that club because there's no way he can afford to go in there Yes, I think that's another brilliantly observed sequence, isn't it, really? And again, I don't know how much Skolimowski was basing that on his own observations, I think, of London life at the time, which I guess um, revolved in large part around these private members clubs. And I think that's always been a facet of British or English life. And uh, even though, I mean, we're meant to be in this very swinging sort of liberated environment, there still is this hierarchy, isn't there, in terms of how much you can afford. And it's still this there's still this sense of exclusivity around these uh, these settings, isn't there, really? Yeah, and that Mike, Mike was like, well, what if I don't have a drink? Can I still go in there and just pay the fee to get in? And it's very strict in, in its rules, and, and that's something – you know, you still have the the Soho clubs and these um these membership only exclusive worlds that people want to be part of, particularly because they're exclusive, and that people sometimes use that as a way to show their status. and And definitely the fiance Strider, and you know, he plays with the the pen and and points at the the uh, receptionist, and he's seems to really own his space there and he feels like he is uh, a king in that little world oh yeah he's strutting like a peacock when he comes in there this was the sequence because what we're talking about with so much of the discussion of this film just for the listeners this film isn't necessarily scenes a lot of times it's more sequences so we have like the one of the reasons why this threw me off was the first time watching this and we have mike trying to go into the club and he can't with lucky landslots you can get lucky just about anywhere dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom sorry sorry we're here we were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time no lucky land casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry in that case i pronounce you lucky Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Do it. So he comes out. He buys a hot dog. He hangs around. He goes back. He buys another hot dog. I was thinking at first that each time he was buying a hot dog, it was another night. 
So I didn't realize that this was all taking place on the same night for a while. And then once I did, I was like, wow, this is a really ballsy sequence for just how long this is going on. This is, you know, I've talked in the past on the show about like one crazy night films and those movies that take place over the period of one night. This whole, not necessarily the third act, but a large section of the second act of this movie takes place during one evening. So it's a really gutsy move to do that. And I have to say that Mike eats almost as many hot dogs as Joey Chestnut does. I was very surprised at how much he's downing with these hot dogs. And that great uh, appearance by the Chinese vendor was fantastic as well, especially their whole, the way that the awning cuts off the top of Mike's head. So he has to keep like bowing down to the guy and the guy will bow down to him. And it just becomes this almost like Evan and Costello sequence inside of this larger thing. Yeah. Yeah, and the they kind of the ritual that they go through every single time with hot dog, mustard, you know, that's a, you know, it's pound or whatever it was. And, and that um, actor is also played Kato from Pink Panther movies. Um, but it's so, it's another scene, this one and the Diana Dawes scene are, are two that struck me as, as being quite dreamlike and, and quite surreal because he does eat so many hot dogs <laughs> that it feels like how can you possibly eat that many, especially because when you see the hot dogs, they're on these like very big buns and so it's quite a lot of bread that he was eating. That's what I was thinking. I was like, how is he not full yet? He just keeps eating more and more hot dogs and he buys two hot dogs for these other girls and um, and he just keeps going around and coming back for another hot dog. And so it does feel that, and, and when he goes in to see the prostitute, it feels like it's not happening in the real world and and particularly because it's outside it's one of the few scenes we have outside and at nighttime in this glamorous soho setting yes it, it's a very um as you say like a quite a hallucinatory sequence isn't it really and uh, i think it's difficult also to get a sense of the space isn't it really i mean from what i've read or heard i think it was basically like a little alley really it wasn't like a large territory of Soho but it's quite difficult to piece it together isn't it really and it, it, there is this sort of fluidity to the whole sequence and it's quite a hard to sum it up in retrospect I find that I have to try and pin down the order in which things happen and uh, I guess the hot dogs is one way to do that really because I, I was trying to sort of get a grip on the scene and I was thinking well he has the first hot dog then he goes to the club he has the second hot dog and then he <laughs> and so on and then you have the yellow as well, don't you, From uh, which is, I think, carried over from the fact that Susan wears this extraordinary plastic uh, yellow overcoat. And then I think that the uh, art director basically painted some of that street yellow. So I guess yellow is um, uh, maybe meant to sort of connect the figure of Susan to this environment. And uh, I think another extraordinary thing for me is the music. I think the use of can on the soundtrack, which I think is... I would say one of the things that makes the sequence a lot more powerful and a lot more timeless, I would say, than a lot of other comparable uh, Soho sequences in movies of that time where you might have a kind of a trendy British pop group. And here you have this German prog rock group with this kind of crazy 10 minute track. And uh, to me, that's another kind of estranging or a, another sort of defamiliarizing element in the scene. The fact that you have this German group <clears throat> singing these rather sort of strange, half-nonsensical lyrics over the scene. 
I have to throw out that, of course, he's getting mustard on the hot dogs as well, which is another tie into the yellow, uh, too. Um, but we also have, like, throughout this sequence, like, a heist scene that's going on in here because we have this standee of this woman who bears a striking resemblance to Susan and him becoming now obsessed with this standee to the point where he ends up sealing it. And that's what he takes in with him in this horribly clumsy sequence with the prostitute. And the prostitute is fantastic. Her and all of her strings that she has up, her levers and pulleys. I mean, it is so, like, welcome to my web, set the spider to the fly kind of thing. Because she is just there sitting and able to pull different levers and open things, turn on a record player, all of this stuff. It is amazing. Yeah, I, I love that scene. Uh, so she she plays it really well when she reveals that she has a cast on her leg and how she has cut her price in half because of the fact that she has the only one usable leg. Um, and all those levers, I, I was really impressed with her setup, how she can open doors, she can put a record on. She's someone as well who appears to be very nice and, and welcoming to Mike. She offers him a drink for free um but you're never quite sure what's going to happen or where she's going to go and you have the football football uh posters all around so she's another throwback almost to the diane Dawes character that she also loves football so you don't know if things are going to go back in that direction or not and then mike is awkwardly holding this standee uh, as he goes about the room and and it's very clumsy it's hard to hold and it's like he's trying to hold on to susan um but he can't quite hold on to her the way he wants to. And then you've got the threat of outside of him trying to hide from the guy that wants his standee back. So there's so much going on. It's a very, it's, it's packed with energy. That's scene. I love it. Yes. Another of the great scenes, I think. And, and uh, yes, and I, I think again, it does connect well to the Diana door sequence. Cause again, she's the one sitting. So she's stationary unavoidably, of course, cause she has the broken leg, but is still the one in control throughout the scene. And, uh, I think what's really striking as well, I think, about the cords, as you said, I mean, I think that's a great idea that it is like a spider with a fly. But, of course, it's also another uh, of those motifs, isn't it, that, that anticipates the ending, I think, with the uh, the cords from the lights hanging down. So I guess it's another example of Skolimowski weaving that motif into this very sort of striking scene. And I like how she recognizes the standee, you know, oh, that's Angeline, I know her, and just, you know, is that even a real person? Is it somebody that is at the club? I mean, it's it's almost like Susan goes in the front of the club and she becomes Angeline, the star of this the, the place next door, you know? Yeah, and the thing is, you, you can't trust Susan, so I was finding myself also frustrated along with Mike and wanting her to admit it, whether it was her or when he was on the train and yelling at her. I was like, yeah, just tell, just tell him. I'm, I'm confused too. I feel like it could, it could be you. I don't know. Or maybe it's not. And I was like questioning myself and what I thought about the standee. And, um, so yeah, I found that really frustrating that she wouldn't admit to whether it was her or not. I mean, it definitely looks like her. I kind of, I think, instinctively agree with what Jane Asher says, I think, in one of the extras, that it probably is not her, but it, it looks a bit like her. And then maybe, because as you say, we're seeing it through Mike's eyes, maybe we're seeing it as he sees it. So I guess we kind of impute this resemblance that is in his mind. But as you say, she she's playing with him, isn't she? She's not sort of coming clean and saying, well, yes, obviously it's not me. She likes to sort of uh, play with his mind a bit and... Uh, 
I think in a way there's a certain sort of uh, legitimacy to the way she does that because, I mean, he's saying, well, this is not you, what you're supposed to be like. But And then she says, well, what am I supposed to be like? I mean, mm. again, it's about trying to sort of impose an identity, isn't it? Trying to impose a stereotype. And she's saying, well, I'm not going to be bound by that. I'm not going to be bound by what you think I am. Yeah, and she plays with him throughout this whole movie and just the way that you know that she destroys his bicycle the one thing that we know for sure that he really likes to see him enjoying that freedom of riding his bike to work and then just have her destroy that uh later on i mean there's a it's almost a heavy-handed uh metaphor in here where she's calling a dog to her and then throws a snowball at it and it's just like that whole come here i'll punish you kind of thing is what she's constantly doing with mike throughout this movie not to excuse what happens in the movie because mike goes completely overboard with this to the point of him slashing her tires and all of this stuff and it's just like now watching this in 2018 it like makes me very uncomfortable because I've had friends who have experienced stalkers before and Mike is just, you know, all of these warning signs are going off. Like Mike's a stalker we should really do something to stop this. Or I wish there was a way to make this behavior stop. But if, if anything, and again, not trying to blame the victim, it feels like she's encouraging that when she could have gone the other way. Yeah, she definitely plays with him. And I think, like you say, Jonathan, that um, with the whole standee, you know, she is like, you're projecting your fantasy onto me. That's not that's not me. Um, I'm, that's not who I really am. And, and Mike sees her the way that he wants to see her and um, and then then becomes quite dangerously obsessed with her, very dangerously obsessed with her. And the things that that he does when he starts to take an active step towards, you know, first he's just trying to uh, follow her on her dates and then he, with the bike, he's trying to stop them from being in the car together and then gets to the point where he is preemptively making things happen by putting the, the glass bottle underneath the tires to make sure that they're slashed. I mean, he does become quite dangerous, but interestingly, the way that he's played, he also feels quite innocent, even towards the end as he becomes more the one making the moves and the one that's more aggressive but it is unsettling to watch it it's it does he's definitely a stalker and it's increasingly harder to watch this kind of film with all the current conversations in the world yeah i mean there was just an article a few weeks ago about you know how stalkers used to be cute you know and now it's like i can't watch pretty in pink and be like man ducky you should get a restraining order against you exactly Yes, I mean, and I felt the same, actually, yes. And I think maybe my own impression of that has changed uh, since I first saw the film, because that's going back 20 years, really. And uh, certainly, I think that dimension really springs out at me now. I think the extent to which, I mean, a lot of his behavior is, I mean, harassment, really, isn't it? Or, or you know, as you say, it's stalking. And uh, yes, I, I think we do look at it differently now from perhaps how it would have been seen at the time. And I think maybe Susan, it's possible to see her in a different light too now. I mean, I think that uh, some of the reviews of the film tend to give the impression that she's this very negative character and almost a sort of a misogynistically created character. But I mean, I think that uh, I I wouldn't really um, go along with that. I mean, I think that uh, although, as you say, she does, there is this element of teasing and of, of cruelty, but I think it has to be said too that she's actually quite a funny character as well and I, I think um you know she's really um as you say playing games all the time and i mean to me that's something that's very much part of scully cinema in general i mean i think he loves 
he loves game playing and to me she is the arch game player in the movie and I don't think that's necessarily strictly a negative thing. You know, sometimes in the world, the only power women have is is their sexuality when they don't have financial power, um, you know, or, or they're not uh, managers or anything, bosses, then the way that they can use their powers is through their sexuality. And I think with Susan's character, she's someone who is constantly objectified, constantly looked at as a sexual object. So she seems to have owned that and thought, well, if that's the way that men are going to see me, then I'm going to use this to my advantage and get to where I want to be. And um, and I kind of feel underneath that, you know, I think Jane Nasher plays her so well because she is quite funny. Um, she has a lightness about her and also a darkness and a real vulnerability underneath it all. You know, there are moments you see her and you think that she's just uh, a bit lost or, or a bit broken by the world and, and just trying to get through as best as she can. I guess we get less of her in her life than we do with Mike, but I think we can piece together certain things about her background, can't we? The fact that, I mean, she says that she, her mother's dead, and then we learn at the end that the gym teacher was like the first, uh, the, the person that she uh, uh, lost her virginity to, and then she says, well, that ruined everything. So we do get this background of somebody who's had a quite a difficult start, and I think, as you say, she's uh, doing whatever she can to gain some status or gain some um some advantages and um i mean she's a resourceful character isn't she i think i mean we see that when she's sewing these strange looking sort of stuffed toys together and um i think we can see her as somebody who's a survivor really or somebody who who really is a pragmatist maybe more than this kind of idealism that mike represents right she tells her fiance if you like it then you got to put a ring on it he ends up buying this tiny teeny tiny little diamond for her but it becomes the most valuable thing in the world for her which brings us into the final sequence of the film which is this whole idea of mike slashing the tires her punching him losing the diamond from her ring and then they're trying to recover it and doing it in this wild way of taking all the snow from outside where the diamond has been dropped and moving it into the pool so that it can melt under these lights and they can sort through all of the the uh the 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 detritus and try to find the diamond out of that and that is again a really really striking sequence just the way that it is filmed is great the acting is great you talked about the way that the gym teacher comes back into the scene and the way he backs out of the scene I mean, there's a lot of things happening in this. It is such a powerhouse ending. When I first saw it and earlier on in the film, there's the scene where the young boys are figuring out that they can lower the lights by by that knob and turning it and the lights slowly come down. And I remember seeing that scene and thinking that – uh, something was going to happen with lights and electricity in the water. And so when they come back in the pool and they're using the kettle and stripping the wires and, you know, rigging it in this such elaborate way to, and, and it's in the pool, I was just thinking the whole time that some kind of, uh, you know, ele- someone was going to get electrocuted in some way because there's so many dangerous wires just dangling about with water. And it's an interesting way to find a diamond. You know, I think it is quite resourceful. Again, it's something that is just a step away from reality. Uh, it ends up working, of course. They they well, Mike finds the diamond when she's out of the room and then plays with her in order to give it back. 
Um, but yeah, the whole time I thought it was going to be something with electricity. So the way that the film ended up ending uh, was a real surprise to me. And, and again, it was like at first I wasn't sure if I enjoyed that ending or not, but thinking about the film as a whole, it seems inevitable that it was going to end up in that way. Yeah, I'm right there with you. When I saw the water rising and being almost as tall as the, those lights, I was like, that's it. The whole everybody yeah. in the pool is going to get baked. <laughs> Yeah, and I think you get a shot, don't you, of the dangling cord with I think a lot. You get that sort of like electricity sparks and things, don't you? And it's almost like a little red herring, isn't it? I guess, and uh, I guess anticipate that something bad will happen, but it's not quite the thing that you expect. Yeah, it is definitely not. And when he swings the light and it hits her head, the way that she turns at first, I thought she was just pissed off. I didn't realize how much it had hit her. And so when she collapses into the water and then we get a call back to not one, but two previous uh, shots before where we have Mike in the water with Susan, a naked Susan, one where he's fantasizing and it just kind of comes about. And then another where he actually takes that standee of Angeline into the water and she becomes a real girl. It becomes like this almost mermaid sequence. And then we have it a third time here, and then mixing that with the red paint and the blood from Susan just really adds to a whole other level of it. And the way that he doesn't react at all, that that's so unsettling to me. And I had to rewind uh, the DVD and watch it again because I was... I was so put off by that that he didn't seem to to care that she was hurt. It was almost just a sense of like, oh, well, thank God it's all over, uh, relief that it's done and, and this is the way it's supposed to end. Again, that sort of inevitability of, of the way things ended up for both of them. But, yeah, I was really shocked by the fact that there wasn't much reaction to her dying. Even from herself, she kind of just looks, but it's like she almost expects it. Yes, I agree. There is that sort of horrible inevitability, isn't there? And there's like a weird logic, even though it seems to come out of nowhere, there is this weird logic whereby, I, I guess, the cutout is a sort of an inanimate object. It's an inanimate version of her. And I guess this whole sort of sexual culture is about selling uh, inanimate images, isn't it? Or, or sort of mute images of women as objects. And so ultimately, she does become this inanimate object that he's caressing. So there is a sort of a horrible logic which i think is part of the kind of critical element maybe that you can see going all the way back to the beginning of our discussion jonathan i'm very curious what was that uh woman's reaction when you described the end of the film to her i think she was just a bit staggered really she was like well so you mean she's dead at the end of the movie it was just i remember that being the question <laughs> so yes i think it did have even even from my kind of verbose verbal description i think it still had something of that impact of not being quite able to believe it. And uh, I believe that this was the reaction. I think it was at the San Francisco screening of the film, I think, at the time, that apparently uh, every, every the, the audience really loved the film until the ending. And then there was just this sort of mute reaction at the end. So I think that really shows how unsettling that ending is. So clearly it doesn't work for everybody. Clearly that there is this um, there is this shock that it has. Yeah, because often it feels quite, uh, you know, an almost convenient way to to end a film. It's like, oh, we'll tie up all the ends and the dead and bye. But here I, I do think, you know, that it, it 
it works in, in context. It's, it's, um, dark and unsettling. And the first time I saw it, I was like, Oh, okay. And then I rewind it and watched it again the second time, just the ending, the way that it's, it's, um, I think the way that it is telegraphed throughout the whole film makes it feel more like a cohesive end than just a, a convenient way to wrap it up. And I was reading about that San Francisco film festival screening. I think it was a film festival wherever they showed it. And people said, you know, why'd you do that? You ruined it in the last five minutes. And Skolomovsky said, no, I made the film for that last five minutes. That final sequence to me really um, is so well-structured, isn't it? And I think it's so audacious. And um, I think you can kind of see how maybe that was the – in fact, I, I, I do remember hearing that I think that was the uh, – uh, that th- there was a story about a girl who drowned in, in a swimming pool, I think, in, in London or somewhere, and that that was the initiating point of the of the whole project. So, yes, I, 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 I guess there was this process of working backwards. And uh, I think what Mike was saying about the, um, the fact that this is a film of sequences, isn't it, rather than scenes, I think really applies to that ending. Because, I mean, it's quite a long from, I think, the point where they take the diamond out and the snow back to the pool, it, that I can't remember how long it is exactly, but it is quite a long stretch, isn't it, really? And you really just have this main setting of this rather stylized setting of the empty pool, which, I mean, to me is an incredible sort of visual motif because it's almost like a combination of a, of a stage setting, isn't it, like a theatre in the round and also like a kind of arena I guess, for combat. So I think there's something very suggestive about that empty pool at the end. Well, and we should say, too, that I think they end up having sex here, at least it's intimated, and it seems like it's also intimated that he isn't the best lover in the world. I mean, he's 15 years old and having his first sexual experience, so her saying, it's all right, Mike, is very, like, don't worry, it happens to every guy kind of thing. Yeah, there seems to be a a nod to maybe he couldn't perform in the end or prematurely or or whatever it is, but it's not seen explicitly. So it's hard to tell exactly what's going on. Um, But it's interesting that the moment that he loses his virginity and loses his innocence and he ends up becoming a, a murderer and killing her. I would say spend less money on hot dogs, spend more money on prostitutes with one leg. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> she gave you a good deal. Yeah, right? <laughs> I think that's the moral of the story. And if you, uh, yes, he should have taken the advice of Milos in closely observed trains and to think about football more. <laughs> All right, guys, let's go ahead and take a break and we're going to play a few words from our sponsors. I know you know who I'm talking about. It's that guy. Yeah, yeah, with the eyebrows, he's, right? He's in a yeah, million the bushy movies. eyebrows. Sometimes they're bushy, but he also sometimes has a mustache. Yeah, well, but, but he shaved. Well, he, no, he didn't. You know who I'm talking about. You see, you've seen this, him in a million movies. We just saw him in that one thing. Yeah, he looks like a pug. to me chris gore and anthony ray bench on the film threat podcast you got questions sometimes we have the answers after movie diner promo take one john wayne here from the brannigan podcast has anyone seen the full vernon no try again sweaty vernon here from the no come on hey how's it going i'm matt ringler from the schlock treatment podcast hoping you'll tune in to after movie diner it's my favorite podcast. better but also at the same time completely useless um try and mention the movie reviews the interviews with independent film directors things like that matt ringler from the schlock treatment podcast 
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Just here, hoping you'll turn in for a... It's tune-in. Christ. <laughs> Matt Ringler from the Schlock Treatment Podcast. Hoping you'll turn in... How hard is it just to plug the damn show? Do it right, or I'm going to come down there and nail your face to the fridge. Listen up, folks. Matt Ringler here from Schlock Treatment. I want to tell you about a great podcast, The After Movie Diner. There's plenty of pie, and everything's delicious, especially the host, the sweaty Vernick. No, 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 no. I mean, he didn't even mention that the podcast is available every Monday at amdpodcast.blogspot.com and iTunes. Idiot. Well, Eric, would you say that we're just two dudes who love talking about movies over at the Culture Cast? I mean, yeah, I don't know if dudes is the correct nomenclature, though. <laughs> dudes, bros. Okay, what about movie nerds? No, okay, uh, dudes is fine. Not nerds. Anything but movie nerds. Well, over here at the Culture Cast, we talk about new movies, overlooked gems, classics, and some films that cause us to question our sanity twice a week. Yeah, Hot to Trot comes to mind for sure. Yeah, Hot to Trot was a real mess. So make sure to check out the Culture Cast on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to The Projection Booth. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, whmpodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops, us ragging on bad movies, whereas the good folks here at The Projection Booth are talking about good, hearty, cinema-related stuff. Go here for the cinema. Come to us for the laughs afterwards. We Hate Movies every Tuesday. back and we were talking about deep end so right before we left uh jonathan you made reference to uh closely observed trains and yeah i was getting a lot of that from this film i don't know if it was just this idea of uh i mean i described closely watched trains once as being the last Czechoslovakian virgin and that whole idea of the loss of innocence and the sexual performance being tied into other things. And Alicia, your point about as soon as he loses his innocence, he ends up being a murderer. I mean, yeah, you really can't put more of a fine point on it other than bringing in Cat Stevens and having him yell, but I might die tonight. It's like, oh, okay, fade out, boom, the end. And it's just like, 
I can't imagine being in a theater watching that and having that be the ending because I would have just sat there gobsmacked. Yeah, I think I, I would have done the same. I would have sat there and, and just had to sit with it for a moment. And But it'd be fun to watch it in a theater and with a, with a friend, I imagine, and walk out and say, you know, really dissect it and think, well, what did you think of that ending? And 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 um, talk about it because it's, it's one of those films that on further reflection, more things become apparent. And, um, and again, the ending becomes more inevitable and, and you start to see the way that it is signposted throughout the film. And so I imagine, you know, second time around, not only do you know how it ends, but it also would feel much more like uh, that's the way it was always going to end rather than the first time. It's such a shock the first time you see it. And I, I believe that there was originally meant to be um, a scene after that where Mike dies as well. I believe he was meant to sort of go off in the car that he's um, the, 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 his car um, whose tires he's ruined and that basically he dies in a car crash. And uh, I think that would have been, uh, so to speak, it would have been overkill, I think, to have included that ending as well. I think really from the, the scene that we have, I mean, you're, you're, I kind of, get the sense that you're meant to assume that, I mean, really, there's nothing left now for Mike either, really. So it is a kind of death scene for him too, isn't it, really? And as you say, you have the Cat Stevens, you know, I, I might die tonight. So I, I think basically this is the end for him as well, isn't it, even without the explicit scene of him dying too. Yeah, this is one of those movies that really brings up the whole idea of what happens five minutes, five months, five years from the time of this ending, because, yeah, he could try to get away with it maybe he gets away with it maybe he but i imagine that him being who he is the guilt would just ruin him because he has put this woman up on this pedestal for so long and then when this happens his his whole mental state must just you know be in in ruins after this yeah he has nothing left he's he's ruined his fantasy uh or maybe he's kept her the way that he wants to think of her for the rest of his life as in that moment um i'm not sure but it is interesting and and again there was a, a shot of the the kettle floating in the the water and again i was thinking like is is he gonna get electrocuted <laughs> i was still wondering that <laughs> or who's going to find them? Is that attendant who turns on the water? Are they going to come in and, and find them there together? What's going to happen? Yeah, it's interesting. I kept getting a real Hal Ashby vibe from this movie. I don't know if it was just, you know, I talked about the floppy hair that Bo Bridges had in The Landlord. It could have been the Cat Stevens from, you know, Harold and Maude, but it just felt like it was along those lines. But then also Skolomowski coming from this uh, Polish school of filmmaking. I mean, it's one of those things where if you don't notice the symbolism in here, I mean, I feel bad for you because there's just so much of it, like from the very first shot, but that, you know, the Polish filmmakers were masters of this kind of stuff, being able to just tell a regular narrative story, but layer it with enough other things that you can pull it apart. We can talk about a movie for an hour and a half and still have barely scratched the surface. We haven't even talked about things like the track race or his friends or any of these kind of things. And it all plays into the larger piece. It's not like you could trim out any of those pieces and you would suddenly, you know, and it would be a faster paced movie. I mean, each one of those things is a building block and it's very well put together. Yeah, and, you know, there's even 
the idea of uh, the pool, like the shallow end and the deep end and what happens in the deep end versus the shallow end. There's so much going on in this film. It's really fun to pull it apart and I can't wait to dive into it again. And I think your Polish filmmakers, like you said, are very good at telling these stories with with allegory and, and metaphors on top of it. And I think often they had to. They had to be a bit, you know, underhanded with what they were saying. They couldn't say everything exactly as it was happening in their country and and it's it's interesting I do get a Hal Ashby vibe like it feels like it's got the dark comedy of uh, of a Harold and Maud but also it feels to me like a very British film which is hard to say because you know it's made by a Polish director it's a US German co-production shot a lot in Munich uh, but it feels like it has that dark unsettling reality to it of something something like the kitchen sink dramas. Uh, it's a very different coming-of-age type story than the other ones that were out around that same time, like something like The Graduate. You know, just it feels very different in tone and style. So you still have the pool sequence in The Graduate that I guess also reminded me. At one point when he was in the bottom of the pool, when he falls in at first, I think it is, I was thinking of Benjamin at the bottom of the pool. And I think there's quite a lot of other British films, aren't there, of that era, which are about naive young protagonists. I mean, sometimes they're male or sometimes they're female who are sort of discovering themselves sexually in this context of supposed social permissiveness. So, I mean, I was thinking of things like Here We Go Round the Mulberry Bush or The Knack and How to Get It. And uh, to me, the film sits kind of at an angle from those films because I think it is observing the same time and place, but it's doing it with this sense of distance. It's this sense of, a, you know, the outsider looking in. And to me, that's very interesting because I think for, for most of the British public at the time, I mean, Swinging London was something where, you know, they were outsiders looking in on this thing that really was confined to really a small number of people who actually experienced that. So I think there were probably more people who were in the same position as Mike, who were not quite part of this world, who wanted to be part of it. And uh, yes, to me, I think in that sense, too, it also connects with films that were being made by non-British directors about Britain. So, I mean, I guess we've mentioned Polish filmmakers and I think I mean the I think one point of reference is Polanski's Repulsion where you also have a I guess a disturbed protagonist films like Blow Up maybe as well where I think you have that observation of a real social milieu but also that visual stylization with the use of color and so on um reminds me a little bit of Lindsay Anderson's uh, The White Bus as well which also mixes uh, this kind of verite quality with surrealism. And uh, that was shot by a Czech cinematographer. So I think, again, you have this sense of a kind of East European sensibility bleeding into a British uh, context. And uh, really, for me, that's one of the things that I most cherish about the film. I think that it is this combination of the best of British and the best of Polish sensibilities somehow coming together. So I think that the sense of humor to me is very British. I mean, it's almost Python-esque, I think, in certain points. And yet I think the visual stylization, the symbolism, and I think the sense of fatalism too, to me, are more characteristically Polish somehow. Yeah, you can almost hear the cops coming in and saying, what's all this then? <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful friends. <Yeah. laughs> Jim, yes. 
Yeah, and Skolomowski, I mean, he's been mentioned on this podcast before. When we did uh, Larry Cohen's Bone, I talked a lot about uh, his movie The Shout from 1978, which if folks listening to this haven't seen The Shout, I highly recommend that movie. That is a fantastic film. And Skolomowski, I mean, he co-wrote the screenplay for Knife in the Water, which I hope to one day talk about on this podcast. And he is still a very, very viable filmmaker. I mean, not only a viable filmmaker, film writer, but also an actor. He has been an actor in quite a few things, things that you might not even realize that he was in. I mean, he is the uh, the general who's beating up uh, the Black Widow in the Avengers at the beginning of the Avengers when we're uh, reintroduced to her character. So he is around and he's doing a, a lot of stuff. So if you're not familiar with Skolomowski, I highly recommend that you check out his work because he's done some great things over the years. Yes, and it's it's nice to see that he's had a comeback, really, in the last 10 years. I mean, I think that uh, Four Nights with Anna, which I think 2008, I think is a really uh, great counterpart to Deep End because that's also a film about obsession with a woman. And it's, again, about this disturbed outsider male figure. So, uh, yes, I think that makes a nice sort of Polish uh, counterpart to that. And, um, I mean, I would say that um, he's had quite an uneven career and I think it's often a career that's been marked by frustrations and by gaps and yet I think the number of films that he's managed to make often on a shoestring and often very quickly I mean it's quite remarkable really he's really uh, very good at sort of bouncing back and, and and pulling something out of a hat out of a hat that you might not expect really um, another great British film of his is uh, Moonlighting with Jeremy Irons I really recommend that as well. I think that's um, extraordinary performance by Jeremy Irons as a Polish, uh, a Polish man living in London, um, basically kind of manipulating this group of people to build this uh, or, or to decorate this house. And uh, you have the whole context of the solidarity movement at the time in Poland. And uh, again, I think a great use of symbolism and of metaphor in that film too. Yeah, and I think he uh, he made a cameo in that film as well, didn't he? he? And I think he it was a brief cameo in D-Bend too. I didn't know him, but I did afterwards. Yes, he, he plays the man on the subway, I think, he, and he's reading like a Polish language newspaper. But yeah, he's only, yes, it's like a few seconds, but yes, <laughs> it's funny, funny appearance. So you're saying that Moonlighting is not about a detective agency that's on the outs, that's run by a former fashion model, and this other low-rent detective comes in and kind of reinvigorates the business? The other one, yes. Oh, okay. Well, on that note, let's go ahead and take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Genetics, what can it mean? The ability to perfect the physical and mental characteristics of every unborn child. In the not-too-distant future, our DNA will determine everything about us. A minute drop of blood, saliva, or a single hair determines where you can work, who you should marry, what you're capable of achieving. In a society where success is determined by science, divided by the standards of perfection, 
one man's only chance. How do you expect to pull this off? I don't know exactly. Is to hide his own identity. This is the last day that you're going to be you and I'm going to be me. By borrowing someone else's. Congratulations. What about the interview? That was it. Do you think you'd be doing what you're doing if it wasn't for who you are, what you are? I have a feeling you might be there under false pretenses, playing somebody else's hand. They've got my picture plastered up all over the place. They'll recognize me. They won't recognize me. They'll recognize me. I don't recognize you. They won't believe that one of their elite could have suckered them all this time. They are going to find me. But in a place where any cell from any part of your body can betray you, how do you hide? When we all shed 500 million cells a day. Ethan Hawke. Uma Thurman. Welcome to Gattaca. That's right, we'll be back next week with a discussion of Gattaca. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Alicia and Jonathan. Jonathan, what have you been working on these days? Well, I have a couple of things uh, due out and a couple of things in the pipeline. So um, I'm uh, in the final stages of co-editing a book uh, for the Courtauld Institute in London. Um, This will be um, a collection of essays about modernism in Central Europe. So I'm contributing a chapter to that on a film, but uh, it's dealing broadly with um, other art forms. I think for people maybe who are interested in um, Central European movies, I mean, I think this collection hopefully will give a bit of context, a bit of background about some of the uh, artistic movements in these countries. Uh, So this is um, uh, going to be a reader on uh, modernism in in, uh, basically we're confining it to Czechoslovakia, Hungary and Poland. And hopefully this will be out as an e-book at the end of the year. And um, another uh, forthcoming uh, publication is a collection that I've contributed to, and this is called Popular Music and the Moving Image in Eastern Europe. So I've contributed a piece on Czech pop music and the new wave. And um, I've not seen the rest of the collection yet, but this also looks like a fascinating collection. It's got uh, essays on everything from Romanian communist era musicals to hungarian rap videos so i think that should be a very interesting uh, collection and that also i think is due out at the end of this year well i will be in touch with you in a few weeks to uh talk to you about setting up our recording for who would kill jesse i'm excited to have you back for our czech timber series oh i can't wait <laughs> i love that film where can people keep up with you and all your work uh, well, I have an Academia Edu page and I have a LinkedIn page and um, uh, I also contribute um, um, from time to time to the second run um, uh, booklet for their DVD and Blu-ray releases. So uh, my latest piece of writing is about Black Peter, uh, the wonderful Milos Forman film, which is actually not a million miles away from Deep End now that I think of it. That's also a sort of another coming of age narrative of a more lighthearted type. So there's a little, little bit of information about me on the second run page as well. And how about you, Alicia? What's keeping you busy? Quite a lot. Um, so if you are in the US, you can see me as a host on Turner Classic Movies. 
use TCM. I introduce the classic films on Sundays and Tuesdays. It's really fun. And then I'm also a host on the streaming service Filmstruck, which is a partnership between TCM and the Criterion Collection. Some of the best movies from all over the world, all different eras. I'm really happy to be part of that. And I host little overview piece curated themes they have on Filmstruck. And then you can also hear the Filmstruck podcast, which I host and I get to have in-depth conversations with filmmakers about their work. And um, then I wrote a book which was out last year called Backwards and in Heels, and it's about the history of women in Hollywood. And I'm just about to finish my second book, which is a guidebook to some of my favorite movies directed by women. That's called The Female Gaze, and that'll be out in November. And then, uh, but you can keep up with me on social media, just at Alicia Malone on all the things. Yeah, I was very curious because I saw you on TCM right before we started recording this. I was curious how you did both of those things at the same time. Yeah, so with TCM, I go down to Atlanta where they film once every two months and do a whole batch at a time. So I do two months worth, and that's really fun in the lead up to it because I watch all the films. It's about 70 different movies. I watch them or I rewatch them if I haven't seen them for a while uh, and then write the scripts, do all the research, and then go down and have – three intensive days of shooting different outfits, different hairstyles, that it slowly plays out over the two months. But I really enjoy getting to dig into some of the films that I haven't seen in a long time or ones that I have but get to research more about them. Um, It's a dream job and literally my dream job that I had when I moved to the U.S. and and a dream job for anyone who loves film. Well, great. Thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head over to the website, projection-booth.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode, as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. Don't want to work away Doing just what they all say But work hard, boy, you'll find One day you'll have a job like mine Cause I know for sure Nobody should be that poor Say yes, a simple load Cause you happen to say so, say so You say so I don't want to work away Doing just what they all say A work hard for you'll find One day you'll have a job like mine Job like mine A job like mine Be wise Look ahead Use your eyes He said Be straight Live right But I might die tonight
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.